If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Chief Machinist Mate Jerry Markham. Markham served as a Navy CB during World War II and was tasked with destroying German obstacles that could have prevented a successful beach landing on D-Day. Well, it was back in about 1943. The war had been in progress for quite some time at that point. And I was in a job in a large paper company that was exempt from the draft. I had no concern about that, so I had to volunteer for the service. I was about 24 years old at the time. And I'd always been interested in deep-sea diving. And the Navy, as a boy, used to go down and watch the Navy ships come in in New Orleans, where I was raised as a youngster. And I was interested in deep-sea diving, so I thought I'd join the Seabees and get into the diving school and make my contribution to the war effort. So I volunteered for the Seabees in 1943, was inducted in the service, went to Camp Perry, Virginia, which was a big Seabees training base. And after the induction training, I was assigned to a water purification school, which meant I would have been on an island somewhere chlorinating drinking water. <laughs> that was not my idea of a glamorous deep-sea diving experience. So about that time, the requests for volunteers come along for the uh, Naval Combat Demolition Units. They said extremely dangerous and hazardous work, must be physically fit, able to swim strong, handle small boats, etc. So I volunteered for that from the CBs, along with about 90 other CBs. It sounded exciting the way it was put up. I don't think any of us were concerned about the dangerous and hazardous uh, missions. We considered all war effort to be dangerous and hazardous missions. We didn't realize how really dangerous and hazardous it was until after we got into it and got trained very well. But uh, the swimming and small boat handling appealed to me. Uh, as, as far as the, the volunteer notice was concerned. And the actual training, uh, we, we did some salvage diving, shallow water diving gear, and we did all kinds of things, hand-to-hand combat, uh, obstacle courses, closer order drills. <laughs> the Marine Raiders had us for the first six weeks of this uh, volunteer separating the men from the boys. And uh, it was quite an experience. I think we had 30 volunteers left at the end of that three-week knockdown grilling we had from the Marine Raider training. We didn't have sophisticated explosives like plastics and things of that type. We were using the old 
dynamite and TNT, which were very dangerous to handle. And um, this was what we, we understood to be the dangerous part. We would be handling these explosives in the surf conditions, under, under duress conditions. And uh, so we were extra trained in this. Safety was the key word. Uh, anybody who was careless was dropped out of the outfit immediately in handling any of these kind of explosives or anything else like that. That we didn't visualize uh, going up on a beach and being shot at. We thought we were going to go in and do maybe a reconnaissance work and then go in and clear out obstacles and so forth in preparation for the main invasion forces, which is what we were being trained for. That we thought was the danger part of it. The idea of, of uh, forming the Navy demolition units to begin with started with an experience in the Pacific. There was a famous invasion out there of an island called Chorwa, Chowan, where all the Marines were slaughtered because they couldn't get ashore. They were stranded on a reef. And the Navy who conducted the invasion forces did not have the intelligence, did not have the reconnaissance, did not know about that reef, did not know that their landing craft couldn't get across it to the beach. So these, these Marines were exposed. They had to walk, they had to wade two or 300 yards through this reef to get to the shore. So that experience said to, to the Navy, we have got to have reconnaissance. We've got to have intelligence already. Well, anyway, this experience the Navy had out in the Pacific and trying to land on this island with Tarwar brought attention to the Navy that they had to do a job of getting intelligence, advanced intelligence of possible invasion sites. They could never expose the invasion forces to such open gunfire as position as that. They had to have someone who, a group that could go in and make the reconnaissance and at the same time identify the obstacles and the mines and the briefs and blow a path through them so the invasion forces could be conducted safely. Therefore, con naval combat demolition units were created out of that need. A forerunner to that was when they contemplated and got ready to invade Africa, North Africa, they picked 13 men from the Seabees who were in the mine disposal, dynamite, and uh, construction units because they were mature, experienced men in handling explosives. They gave them a special training program of how to cut a submarine net that was across a, a channel into a harbor that they had to get into to knock out an airfield in order to conduct an invasion with some safety. These men were sent to Africa, North Africa. It was off the French coast of Morocco. And they went in a channel the first night, and they got caught. So they had to back out and get out of there. And they went in two nights later, and they made it. And they blew that, they blew that, that net, net out of there. Now, one of the men, was a fellow by the name of Freeman, who was also in invasion of Normandy with me, so he's been around a long time. Now, these men were brought back, and, <clears throat> and they got 13 Seabees then and trained them for naval combat demolition work for the invasion of Italy, Sicily. They went to Sicily, and they, 
Fortunately, they had no reconnaissance to do and no demolition work to do on the beaches, but they did go inland and do a lot of work in blowing down tank traps and things like that. So they proved their value in that sense. Then Admiral King of the North Atlantic Forces issued an order. He wanted formal organization of naval combat demolition units. Therefore, he assigned, he appointed a man by the name, a, a lieutenant commander by the name of Kaufman, who is now known as the father of the SEALs, to organize and train these men. Kaufman picked the first men from Camp Perry, Virginia, and I was one of the first guys that went into his group. And we took the, the other men that he'd used in Italy and in Africa, were sent to Fort Pierce, Florida, as instructors, and to help build a base down there for the... For the. So when we finished our first induction training at Camp Perry, Virginia, we went to Fort Pierce, Florida, and helped build, finish building the base. That's how... That's, and I, I would say that of 192 men that made up the uh, Naval Combat Demolition Units at Omaha Beachhead, 80% of them was for, for former volunteers from CBs. The former CBs had volunteered for it. And about the same ratio at the Utah group. The original concept of taking CBs was, was because they were mature, because they had experience in construction, they had experience with explosives, rather than taking the raw 17, 18-year-old Navy seaman and training him uh, how to spell rat and cat, as well as blow up. A, they picked men that were seasoned experience. And they picked men who knew the meaning of dangerous and hazardous duty from the Seabees. Utah Beachhead, which was part of the Normandy invasion, was relatively safe. We had less than 10% casualties in our group there. In Omaha, we had over 52% casualties. So it was it was it was, uh, it was very devastating at, at Omaha Beachhead because of a lot of foul ups in the terrain and the contrast of the beach and so forth and so on. Give you an illustration: the Omaha Beachhead was over 300 yards wide at mean low tide. It had a 27 foot tide. It changed about every six hours. It came in a foot every eight minutes when it started running in. They had bands of obstacles, mined obstacles, at different fight tide levels to catch the incoming landing craft to stop them from, from beaching. Now, a 300-yard beach with eight bands of mined obstacles would catch them at any tide level. Even with a four-foot draft, they couldn't escape hitting an obstacle. Our job was to blow a 50-yard path from the low level, tide low level, all the way to the high water mark through those mine obstacles and put buoys there so that the landing craft coming behind us could could navigate through those those paths in the those buoys. Now you think about it, we're exposed now to enemy gunfire from from HR on till we got to the high water mark. So that was pretty damn dangerous. And uh that was as I read later that uh General Bradley, who was in charge of the Normandy military forces, was just getting ready to call off the Omaha beach, beach sector 
diverted down to Sword Beach, which was a British beach that had been established uh, west of, west of uh, or east of, east of us. When four destroyers come in and laid their keels on the, on the bottom to get in as close and fired at a low level into these gun positions, into the low level that the heavy guns couldn't get to, and knocked them out. And that enabled the engineers and the infantry to get off the beach, to get into those ravines and get up above and, and knock out those, those guns that were just wiping us out on the beach. So the little destroyers did the job for us there that day. There was such strong security on our organization that when we first shipped out in December of uh, 43 to England, there were 11 units of us. The units comprised of six men, one officer and five men. That was what that was known as a naval combat demolition unit. Compact men, men trained where one man could do the whole job if necessary. Big, glamorous, free to corps. <laughs> When we got to England, they didn't know who we were. The security was so great. We went into an amphibious base in Plymouth, England, and they put us putting on guard duty at ammunition dumps because of our name, Naval Combat Demolition. <laughs> and finally, after a few weeks of this, the word came down to who we were, and we were assigned at part of an amphibious base to do our own training and organizing for the preparation. Punchline, about two months prior to D-Day, we were finally made privy to the intelligence reports of the various sections of the Normandy coastline that might be available or used for, for invasion purposes. We then saw what we were confronted with, these mean low tides, 300-yard beaches, mined obstacles, all of these things, and we recognized and we knew immediately we were seriously undermanned. Six men could not, in the time allotted, blow a 50-yard path through any of those. So we then began to combine our strength with the combat engineers, Army engineers. Uh, we, got, we got some more manpower. We increased, we had, we had five combat engineers, Army engineers assigned to the, each of our units. And we had three additional Navy men volunteered to come out of Scotland. So we wound up with a 14-man unit. And the Army put together a 26-man combat group. And we all went in as a combat team to, to start at this base to blow that path. And uh, that's how we were manned. Now, we were carrying specially designed explosive packs that we call the Hagerson pack little sausage-shaped thing about uh, 13, 14 inches long, but filled with plastic explosive with a primer cord through it with a loop on the end to where we could fasten on an obstacle or on a beam or what have you and just tie it together. And then my job, my, my officer's job, was to carry a reel of primer cord and carry the detonators. And we would go behind the men as they would tie these charges and tie them into this long line, this reel, because this, this primer card uh, would fire at the rate of 22,000 feet a second. Now, that's pretty fast. So they were, you, you, you didn't have any false detonations on that. And the thing about it is it was absolutely, you could fire a gun right into it, and it wouldn't detonate it. It took a, it took a special cap to do it, so it was very safe to use. 
But that was what we were carrying with us. The Germans had, had built a thing called Belgium Gate. It was about uh, 10, 12 feet wide and about eight feet high. And it had steel beams facing it like this. And, and the face of the gate come up with mines, mines on each, in the middle and on each end of it. And then the back of it was a A-frame supported to, like this to keep it up upright, facing the ocean like that. And it was built on rollers so that Germans could move it around in different places on the beach, which they had damn little success in doing because once you'd settle into that wet sandy, they weren't going to move. But this, this steel Belgium gate created a hazard itself in addition to its purpose. But to put high explosives on that, you create one hell of a, one hell of a hand grenade, you know, flying steel everywhere. So that's where our ingenious little sausage plastic Eggerson pack, we would place that at the different joints of this thing and then blow it and it would just flatten it out and it would fall right flat down. It didn't spew all over the place because we only had about two pounds of, uh, of tetratol in those little packs. The others were wooden ramps, like a log goes up like this with it, like that, and the log, and the, the boat would slide up that and the mine was on the top of it. Then you had the tetrahedrons. That was a big concrete block with steel beams sticking out like this, which would snare in the bottom of any landing craft. Tetrahedrons, they call them. And uh, those were not mined because, uh, but the, the logs, log ramps were mined and the Belgium gates were mined. And some of the tetrahedrons were mined. Most of the mines were telemines and explode on contact, those kind of mines. In our landing craft, we had an, a rubber boat filled with extra explosives. We couldn't possibly physically carry enough explosives to, to load all of those obstacles. So we carried extra explosives in the, in the rubber boat, which we launched when we hit the beach. That proved to be disastrous because many of the mortars hit those rubber boats and killed a lot of men and, and, and demolished the explosives with it. With it. That's what happened to my, my boat with rubber, boat, rubber explosives. And my officer got killed at the same time when, when that mortar hit that rubber boat with the explosive sign. So we kind of went in with a tide, then, and uh, that looked strong cross current. And part of the units on the left and the right of me began to drift into each other. And we were all pretty badly shot up. So we were trying to, we blew a partial gap with what explosives we had. And then we were spending most of my time, half of my people were, were done. We were getting the wounded men, carrying them with us as far as we, as we progressed up this beach. And we had to hide behind these mine obstacles for protection from the crossfire machine gun fire. And more explosives would come by from the, the, the team on the right of us. His rubber boat drifted over and we got some explosives out of that. And uh, that's how we got some additional explosives. But that was pretty much, it took us about, what we were supposed to do in 30 minutes took us four hours to get to the high water mark that day. We were in the water, but not in any deep water. We were coming in with the tide. 
Remember, the water was coming in a foot every eight minutes. So we landed at 6.33. So eight minutes later, there was a foot of water there. Eight minutes later, there was another foot of water there. And we had to move with the water. And the water was pretty cold that day. I understood it was 58 degrees, and that created a lot of hazards for the wounded, but, you know, a shock and so forth and so on. But uh, our uniform was Army fatigues and, and regular GI shoes and helmets and a garrison belt. And we wore, I wore long uh, winter underwear because it was, was cold. And uh, it was, we didn't carry a weapon because what the hell would you do with it? You <laughs> could carry a weapon. So we, we were just, our job was to blow the path through these obstacles, not to swim. There was no swimming involved. We didn't do any swimming at all over in Europe, except for where we fell overboard, maybe. <laughs> when the landing craft dropped its ramp on the, on the beach, it was at the foot of the first bend of obstacles. Prior to dropping that ramp, we could feel the machine gun bullets, could see them hitting the water and splattering across the the bow of the landing craft. So we knew we were under small arms machine gun fire. I saw a couple of uh, landing craft get hit with martyrs and just blew them right out of the water and killed most of the people who were in it. And when our ship hit the ramp, we dropped the ramp, the first group out was the Army engineers with their rubber boat, which they all portage out. Into the, into the sand and then off to the side and let the water, the tide, bring it in. And by this time, uh, half of them were getting shot all to pieces. We followed them, and we pulled our rubber boat out to the left side and put it down. And some of my men went ahead, uh, and I turned around and looked, and the mortar had hit. My officer was standing by the rubber boat when the mortar hit at him and one of the seamen. And they were just obliterated with the explosions. There must have been 500 pounds of assorted explosions in that rubber boat. So it was my job to take command because that's what I'd been trained to do as a second in command. I was a chief at that time. But regardless, I could have been a second-class petty officer if I'd have been number two in the unit, I'd have taken charge. And uh, But... Taking charge doesn't mean that they want to stand up and start directing people. We'd all been trained to do a job, and everybody knew his job. And all I was to do was to take it, to utilize what men I had left to do as much as I could in loading these obstacles and blowing them, get them the hell out of the way. And I had the detonators and the prime and the reel of detonator, primary card to to detonate them with. So I was very essential. My officer had the other reel, so he was gone. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month 
to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. They didn't have time to be afraid. The, the chaos around you, the, the fury of what was you were into was, you had no, no place to hide. You couldn't take a taxi home. You couldn't go back out to sea. The only place you could go was forward, and you had a job to do. And you knew damn good and well if you didn't do that job, there were a hell of a lot of people weren't going to get off of that beach or get on that beach. So that's the way we'd been trained to do our jobs, and uh, that's what we did the best we could. We had a presidential unit citation for it, and there were eight Navy crosses and 12 silver stars and about 60 Purple Hearts. We blew eight gaps and three partial gaps through 16 possible gaps. We had 52% casualties. And with the help of four destroyers, the mission was successful. I didn't realize. I'd been in a, several explosions that day, <laughs> D-Day, around some major explosions. So by D-Day plus three, I began to, to pass blood. I had a case of the GIs from eating out of greasy mess kits for those nights on that slippery wet deck. And the doctors later told me to probably save my life and stop from having concussion, internal concussions from the explosions. So I was passing this blood with the GIs. And uh, it got pretty bad about the third day. We finished mopping up the beach. We cleaned it all, everything up. I went out to a, a hospital ship that had been beached LSTs to get some chalky substance to stop this. And they slapped my can in the bed that they wouldn't let me go back ashore because I'd lost a lot of blood in them. So anyway, I wound up two weeks later back at my old base in England because uh, they ran me out of the hospital because I recovered very quickly and I was trying to date the nurses and drink up all their scotch. And they wouldn't let me donate blood because they give you give you a big double of scotch if you donate a blood, you know. They said, you bastards, you have got enough blood now. Get out of here. <laughs> What happened on the Omaha beachhead the morning of D-Day, in my mind, was never comprehended that anything like that could happen. I could visualize machine gun fire and mortar fire, but never with such intensity, never with such thoroughness. Every inch of that beach was zeroed in. And as I said before, if, if all of the, the, the preparations had been successful prior to actual beach landing, this would have been greatly minimized, but not completely eliminated. Because the Germans had cliffs dug into those, had, uh, had caves dug into those cliffs 
and gun placements. One German could fire four machine guns at one time, and they were using wooden projectiles, wooden bullets, because they didn't have a round of metal. And these were anti-personnel weapons. And every one of them was zeroed in on different sections of the beach. All he had to do was look at a chart and push a button. And that gun would move here and move there and move there, wherever it wanted to move it. That's, that's how much time they had to prepare for the defense of that beachhead. So your question about how do you grasp something like that, is obviously disproven you. I can't grasp it because I keep going back to it. The details, which is I couldn't comprehend that would ever be that way. As I've said before, I wouldn't take a million dollars for the experience. I wouldn't give you a nickel for any more of it. It's, you know, I don't know how to grasp that one. I think the best moment I had was I was able to save three men's lives. They'd been buried in a mortar cave-in. And uh, I went out and dug their heads out of that. It was soft sand, fortunately. And finally, they wiggled them out of there. They had been in a foxhole with a high bank of, and a mortar hit behind and just caved it in on top of them. And I happened to be laying over to the side when I saw it, and I just jumped up and went over and started digging their heads out so they could breathe. And when they got out, I, I, was, I, I felt very satisfied with myself. At least I'd done something constructive that day. In the heat of stress and battle, and you see... Uh, your friends being shot to pieces and so forth. You're disturbed, there's no question about it, but you've got two fears. The fear of becoming a victim, like they did, and the fear of not doing your job that you were supposed to do. And that's a very individual uh, thing, those two fears. Which, who's going to win? And I think the training we had, the physical disciplinary training we had, the, the stress and so forth and we on, paid off. I don't recall anyone shirking his duty, anyone that, uh, well, there wasn't any place to hide anyway. But uh, I never saw anyone that didn't get up and do everything he could possibly do. Let me give you an illustration about how physically fit these men were. We laid in the English Channel on the English side for three days and nights on a steel deck, sleeping on a steel deck, eating cold rations in rainy weather. We made a false attempt on June 5th and had to go back into the channel and redock and come out again the next night. We crossed the channel on an LCT. That's a tank carrier, a flat-bottom tank carrier. It goes about five knots an hour. The damn thing sunk two miles off of the coast of France. We had to pull a landing craft in and unload the crew off of that and take the crew from the, We had three tanks on this thing. Take the crew over, put them on a transport ship and get back in line and make our invasion site. Half of the men were green with seasickness. Now, can you imagine three days and nights of that? And if you, didn't, if you weren't physically fit, brother, you wasn't going to make it. I think that illustrates how strong and fit they were and how dedicated these men were. Let me explain something, too, about the volunteers. You volunteered to get in, and you had to prove yourself to stay in. You could get out any time you wanted to. All you had to say was uncle, and they sent you to the transfer pool. At the end of the health week, the final knockdown training, if you passed, you were in. 
The officers got together in a group. The, the other men got together in another group. The officers picked their second in command. They then went to that man. This was an enlisted man. There's only six, five men and an officer in the first units. He then went to this first man and said, I've picked you. Do you, do you want to serve with me as my second man? He had, the man had the option of saying no and going back in the pool if he didn't like the officer. The officers took the same training with us shoulder to shoulder, so there's no question about knowing who he was or what he, what he could do. If the guy said yes, then him and the second-in-command went to four more men and gave them the same option. So when that unit was finalized, it was six guys together because they wanted to be together. The other thing was that these men always trained in a buddy system, always two together. We never lost one man in the whole history of the organization from drowning. Never. Because there was always a buddy system. And if one guy got wounded or something, his buddy was there to help him. And uh, that was the way that was put together. And after the, let's say after the Normandy thing, what was left of us? We come back to the States. They disbanded the units. They then went to underwater demolition teams because they were 100-man teams. At that point in time, these men had the option of going anywhere in the Navy they wanted to go, to go back in the CBs, and some of them went back in the CBs. Two of my men went back in the CBs that were in my unit that survived. After what was left of us come back to the States, we dis disbanded the units and folded the men who wanted to go into new, newly formed teams or all existing teams. The teams were called UDTs, Underwater Demolition Teams. They comprised of 100 men, and they were autonomous. They had four combat uh, platoons. They had a ship's company. They had their own motor max. They had their own cameramen. They had their own medics. They had their own destroyer assigned to them. They were very autonomous. They had come of age, so to speak. Say, now, I put together a team with my top commanding officer at Omaha, a full name was Walter Cooper, and we put together a team 25. And I was a senior chief on that team. Of course, I got mixed feelings about uh, the whole concept of war. <laughs> but, but at that particular time, what was left of us were pretty damn proud of the job we'd done. And we, we didn't think any of it was in vain, even though for those that lost their lives. I grieved for those men. A lot of them were young, young boys, and it's teens, 18, 19 years old. That was a curse of being a mature man at 24 at that time. But I didn't think it was in vain. Question came, would you do it again if you knew you were facing the same conditions? And my classical answer is no because we would first eliminate those conditions. This was the attitude, the spirit in which our people were trained and functioned in. We took no unnecessary risk. We took risk, but we didn't take stupid or foolish ones. If all the plans had been carried out on the Omaha Beach, that had been planned, 
if the bombs had not had 32 delayed fuses on them and hit behind the beach instead of on the beach. If the Navy heavy guns had not bounced off of the heavy gun placements, convex contrite. If the thousands of rockets that were fired into that beachhead had done the job of clearing out those mines and those uh, booby traps and, and machine gun nests, we would have had a nice, easy job of blow- doing our job. But none of this was helpful. That's why those four destroyers saved the day. They come in and open up one of those exits from the beach, and when our men got off of that beach, they got behind the Germans, and they knocked the living hell out of them. That's how we got off of that beach. As I told you, I come back and helped form a new team, underwater demolition team. And I was successful in getting 33 of the men from Omaha to join me in that new team. And we were out in the Pacific. We were out at uh, the training base was out in Maui. And we were off the coast of California. There were 17 destroyers laying off the coast, 17 underwater demolition teams, all there off the, for the purpose of cold water training and preparation for the invasion of Japan proper. Now, being a senior chief in my team, I was privy to the intelligence much more than I had been in Europe. And I knew that the invasion of Japan proper would have been worse than Omaha. Because, number one, we were invading a homeland, not an occupied country. They would have fought us with broomsticks, those people. Number two, most important, we would not have had air control. We could never have had complete air control. Number three, we could never wipe out, swipe out all the mines that the, the Japs had placed on different parts of their coast. All kinds of sophisticated mines that we couldn't have gotten through. So when they dropped the A-bomb, and the Japs surrendered for peace. I went to Cooper, my commanding officer. I said, I want you to shake hands with number one. He says, number one, what? American citizen. I'm getting the hell out of this outfit. <laughs> I said, you take these kids and go to Japan. And they took the team, and they went to Japan. They put the occupation forces right on the same logistics that we use for the invasion purposes. And I went home. I'm very proud, as I obviously demonstrate, to, to have been a part of that organization. I've never in my lifetime found uh, such compatibility in a spirit corps with a group of people or men as I did in that organization. And in my civilian life, I've had some pretty top executive jobs. I was the president of a company one time and vice president of several other companies. So I know about the line of chain of command and so forth and so on. But that was the greatest pride I had with in the military was that Spirit Corps, those men. When we looked at one another, we knew why you were there and how, why, you, why you could stay there if you wanted to be there. There's no question in your mind about it. It had nothing to do with your personal life. It was just what you were doing together at that time. If it was part of the the function, the mission, whatever it was, they didn't hesitate in face of danger to do their job to help you or help take a sacrifice, whatever you. 
I don't think they deliberately took sacrifice that nobody felt optimistic about his abilities. But uh, there were never any backing down. Never. That was Chief Machinist Mate Jerry Markham. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rule-Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.